3: Listening to Black History Unveiled, with me, Amat Levine, the podcast spotlighting pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from Black History, from the continent to the diaspora. This marks the third and final part of the Haitian Revolution series. If you haven't already, listen to the first two episodes to get the full context. In the previous episode, we witnessed the outbreak of the revolt and the successful expulsion of the invading British and Spanish forces by the enslaved people of Saint-Domingue. However, instead of peace, the so-called War of Knives ensued, with leaders of the newly liberated population vying for control over the colony. After two years of conflict, the former slave Toussaint Louverture emerged as the victor. But... What's had he really won? Officially, Saint-Domingue still remained under French sovereignty. Our story picks up when the French are gearing up to assert their authority. toussaint Louverture, once an enslaved individual, had not only joined the rebellion, but had risen to become the primary leader of the revolution. While Saint-Domingue was technically a French colony with French officials in place, the French military was situated across the Atlantic. Although they held power on paper, in practice, Louverture governed. But challenges began to mount. During the protracted war for liberation, Saint-Domingue's economy had collapsed. What had once been France's most profitable colony now lay in ruins, with plantations and buildings reduced to ashes. Another pressing issue was that Saint-Domingue, under French control, had been overly reliant on the cultivation of sugar and coffee. This single-minded focus on cash crops had left the colony unable to produce enough food for its population. Importing necessary food items in the past wasn't an issue due to the colony's affluence, but with the devastation of the sugar and coffee plantations, affording food imports became increasingly challenging. In response, Louverture took a drastic step by essentially forcing the population to return to their plantations to rebuild them. While they received salaries and had more leisure time, many inhabitants felt that this reality diverged from the one they had fought for. They had anticipating the freedom to make their own choices and work for themselves, but now they found themselves under Louverture's orders. He even employed his army to ensure that the work proceeded. Dissatisfaction began to spread. And it is easy to understand why. Imagine that we today were all free individuals, nobody outright owned us and we couldn't be bought or sold, but the labor regulations dictated that we had to work 60 to 70 hours a week and had no say in what kind of work we did. You might be compelled to spend those hours cleaning toilets, digging trenches, or constructing roads. How happy would you be with that? How liberated would you truly feel in such a scenario? Shortly after Napoleon's coup, he, as the new leader of France, announced that the country's colonies would be governed by special laws. This contradicted previous assurances that the colonies and their inhabitants would be subject to the same rules as those in mainland France. In Saint-Domingue, concerns began to arise that a French offensive might lead to the reinstatement of slavery. So, to bolster his position, Toussaint Louverture invaded Santo Domingo in early 1801 a neighboring Spanish colony on the eastern part of the island of Hispaniola. He did it without seeking Napoleon's approval, a testament to the authority he had asserted for himself. A month into the fighting, Santo Domingo's leaders surrendered, and Louverture emancipated the enslaved population there. Santo Domingo was integrated into San Domingue, and Louverture now stood as Hispaniola's sole ruler, the ruler of the entire island. Alongside his efforts to revive plantations, he established educational institutions, providing the population with a genuine learning opportunity for the first time. However, the demanding labor requirements fueled protests and minor uprisings, all of which Louverture suppressed with force. That same year, he declared himself governor for life, emphasizing the importance of black self governance and advocating for establishing a black governed state. Louverture introduced a new constitution, solidifying his position, and it contained several authoritarian elements, ranging from stringent labor laws to a proclamation that mandated Catholicism as the only sanctioned religion. From now on, the entire island's population would be considered French citizens. Despite the new constitution, Louverture had not officially declared independence. He still regarded Saint-Domingue as part of the French Empire, albeit a part he believed he controlled. But for Napoleon, Louverture's references to self-governance and the black state were unacceptable transgressions. He had already had it told to him, but needed to see it to believe it. So he mounted his horse and rode to a vantage point of the Samana Peninsula in the eastern parts of Hispaniola. On a January day in 1802, Toussaint Louverture saw it with his own eyes, an ominous spectacle at sea. Straddled upon his steed he saw an immense armada, a swarm of menacing ships carving through the waves. On the horizon more of them spawned. Many were so-called ships of the line, the mightiest war vessels of the era and their decks were burdened with some twenty thousand soldiers. Unbest known to Livertour at that moment, this was but the first wave of what was probably the largest military expedition France had ever embarked upon up until that point. The operation was of the highest priority, perhaps best illustrated by its leadership, General Charles Leclerc, a member of Napoleon's inner circle and a man wedded to Napoleon's own sister Pauline. The fleet also carried André Rigaud, Alexandre Petion and several other free-mixed generals and officers once ousted by Louverture during the fierce War of the Knives. His old rivals for control of Saint-Domingue were now back, ready to help France retake the colony. Rumors of the French invasion had long been adrift, and Louverture had spent the last few weeks preparing. Secret caches of armaments had been peppered across the island, and the local populace schooled in the art of defense. Yet, as he gazed upon the slow-approaching fleet, a sense of dread gripped him. Legend has it that he uttered a somber prophecy. Quote, we are going to die. The whole of France has come to Saint Domingue. Upon the Armada's eventual landing, a tepid attempt at diplomacy flickered and died as neither side yielded. Toussaint Louverture wanted to prevent the French from establishing themselves on the island, and Leclerc seemed more interested in grabbing control by force. After days of impasse, the cries of battle ruptured the air. In a move of strategic defiance, Henri Christophe, one of Livertour’s most trusted men, orchestrated the fiery sacrifice of Cap Francais to avoid a city being occupied by the French. He began by setting fire to his own house to demonstrate his commitment. As the flames devoured the city, Christophe and his men vanished into the mountains. The French dream of swift conquest shattered. It was replaced by the bitter realization that for many French the island would become a grave. But Louverture's iron-fisted governance over Saint-Domingue had sown seeds of discontent among some population segments, a costly rift now coming to a head. His authoritative reign led to a divide, with certain locals declining to swell the ranks of the defense force. Meanwhile, key port cities, strongholds, and plantations fell like dominoes into the hands of the French. There were those who, calculating the odds, threw their lots in with the French, persuaded by a fear of backing the eventual loser. Leclerc, a shrewd tactician, further swayed loyalties with pledges against reinstating slavery, claiming his sole mission was capturing Louverture and Christophe. Although some switched sides or refused to fight— the spirit of resistance was far from extinguished. Among the defiant was Jean-Jacques Dessalines, a leading figure in Louverture's cadre, equally renowned for his tactical brilliance and his ruthless ferocity. His approach was one of no mercy. He slaughtered every French soul in his path, be they combatant or civilian, creating macabre monuments of decayed bodies to instill terror in the enemy. In March 1802, Dessalines, alongside roughly 1,200 soldiers, sought sanctuary within Creta-Pyrot, an old fortress amidst a land scarred by war. They braced for a siege, and soon a formidable French contingent descended upon them, with Leclerc himself joining the fray. Legend tells of Dessalines brandishing a keg of gunpowder and a torch aloft, vowing to his troops that he would sooner reduce the fort to rubble than surrender them to French slaughter. The French, underestimating the resolve of their adversaries, anticipated a swift dispersal upon their assault on the fort. Yet after three thwarted attempts, resulting in thousands of dead bodies rotting in the sun outside the walls, they were compelled to rethink their strategy. They encircled the fortress instead, raining artillery fire upon the defenders. The defenders of Creta Perua withstood the onslaught for about twenty harrowing days, but as provisions dwindled to nothing, they orchestrated a daring escape. Under cover of night, more than half of the twelve hundred rebels slipped through the French encirclement, disappearing into the mountains. For Leclerc, the eventual capture of the fort was a Pyrrhic victory, a public relations debacle. Despite the French forces boasting tenfold in numbers, the embarrassingly prolonged siege and the staggering loss of up to two thousand of their own cast a shadow over their hard-won conquest. As the spring of 1802 unfurled, the war raged on with increasing ferocity. Louverture's forces dwindled alarmingly, both as a result of them being killed in battle, deserting or switching sides. Meanwhile, the French military presence swelled with French reinforcements. By the waning days of April, Henri Christophe capitulated after receiving promises of amnesty, a move that reverberated through the ranks. He joined the French army, along with the soldiers he commanded. By early May, it was Louverture's turn. He rode into the ruins of Cap Francais to parley with the French general Charles Leclerc. In the agreement, Louverture agreed to capitulate. In return, he received the promise that the inhabitants of Saint-Domingue would not be enslaved and that his soldiers would be reintegrated into the French army, their ranks unblemished. Historians have long pondered Louverture's surrender, theories abunding from sheer exhaustion, a grim acceptance of the war's futility, a tactical delay, or perhaps a concession to terms he indeed found tolerable. Soon after, even Jean-Jacques Dessalines, a figure of formidable resistance, surrendered. The once unyielding leaders of Saint-Domingue's rebellion now stood vanquished, However, French suspicions lingered, suspecting Louverture of harbouring plans to reignite the revolt. In June 1802 he was invited by a French major-general to a meeting. There are a few different accounts of what transpired after, but a standard version is that the conversation had barely begun before the room filled with soldiers. They seized Louverture and forced him on board a ship bound for France. His wife, Suzanne, his sons, and other family members were also arrested and forced to the vessel. Louverture, now a captive of renown, was denied the dignity typically afforded to prisoners of his stature. Confined below Dick, a stark realization dawned upon him. The shores of San Domingue would fade into memory. To the crew, he is reputed to have spoken a prophetic declaration quote, In overthrowing me, you have cut down in San Domingue only the trunk of the tree of liberty. It will spring up again from the roots, for they are numerous and they are deep. End quote. The boat anchored at the French port city of Brest, his family remained there, yet for Louverture himself a darker path lay ahead. Without trial he was imprisoned in the infamous Fort de You in eastern France. This castle was used as a grim repository for high-risk detainees, perched ominously atop a mountain ledge. Here, the winter months were a merciless dance of sub zero temperatures, and Louverture's cell became a frigid, damp abyss, barely touched by light. In his isolation, Louverture penned numerous letters to Napoleon. These missives ranged between fervent pleas for mercy and reasoned arguments for his cause. He clung to the hope of a fair trial a hope that withered under the silence of Napoleon. His nights were fractured by relentless cell searches, his sustenance was meager and of poor quality, and the guards even withheld wood to burn from him. Although Louverture's condition rapidly deteriorated, he was denied care, and died alone in his cell on April seventh, eighteen 1803. After getting rid of Louverture, French General Charles Leclerc focused on disarming the population of Saint-Domingue. The black and mixed-race soldiers who went to Leclerc's side were integrated with the units he brought from France. This spelled degradation for the non-white soldiers, as they were subjected to white leadership and stripped of their accustomed autonomy. Some black and mixed-race units were simply disbanded, and their members were commanded to relinquish their arms and return home. While some complied with the order to disperse, their weapons usually remained secretly in their possession. Levertour's arrest sowed seeds of unrest among those still loyal to him, but the ones who now posed the greatest threat to the French were the Maroon colonies. You remember from the last episode, I believe, those communities of fugitive slaves hiding in forests and mountains, fighting for their own cause. They usually opposed the French, but were also uninterested in becoming part of the society that Louverture and other rebel leaders tried to build. The relentless insurrection of these armed Maroons was met with brutal suppression, and ironically. The man charged with this task was none other than Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Once a rebel leader, now aligned with the French army, Dessalines unleashed the same ruthless violence on his countrymen that had once made him infamous. But the fall of one rebel seemed to magically conjure two more. Soon the island was also reached by particularly explosive rumors that changed everything a new French law aimed at reinstating slavery in the colonies was on the horizon. The summer of 1802 saw Napoleon enacting decrees that not only revived French participation in the slave trade, but also barred black and mixed-race individuals from setting foot on French soil without explicit permission. These draconian laws, even before General Charles Leclerc could quell the resistance in Saint-Domingue, smashed all pretense, laying bare the contemptuous regard of France for its black populace and the grim fate that awaited them under French rule. This grievous blunder would cost the French everything. In the shadow of this growing storm, Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Henri Christophe, once under Louverture's command, began to stir the embers of revolt. An October night witnessed their thunderous resurgence. They were joined by a legion of farmers and plantation laborers, trading their tools for arms, swelling the ranks of various insurgent factions. Even Alexandre Petion a mixed-race officer who fought for France at the beginning of the invasion, defected to the rebel cause. As the treachery unfolded, General Leclerc retaliated with a chilling campaign of mass executions. This included former rebel soldiers who had integrated into the French army but also innocents showing no signs of rebellion. Conservation of ammunition led to hangings becoming prevalent but another harrowing method involved binding prisoners together and casting them into the sea to drown. Leclerc, sometimes depicted as a figure of relative restraint, descended into a spiral of genocidal tactics as the conflict dragged on. In a letter to Napoleon in October 1802, he wrote, Here is my opinion of this country. We must destroy all of the black people in the mountains, men and women, and spare only children under twelve years of age. We must destroy half of those in the plains and must not leave a single person of color in the colony who has worn an epaulet. By the way, epaulettes are these shoulder decorations used as an insignia of rank by armed forces. Once more Saint-Domingue was ravaged by full-scale war, and the situation soon became acute for the French. The summer's relentless rains had ushered in a devastating outbreak of yellow fever, claiming thousands of French lives. There are many testimonies of the suffering the disease brought. Philippe Gerard, a historian hailing from Guadeloupe with a litany of works on Haiti, Paints a hellish picture of the disease's brutality in his book The Slaves Who Defeated Napoleon. The illness typically heralded its arrival with headaches and a fierce fever, soon followed by kidney pain, violent vomiting, and profuse sweating. A deceptive lull often suggested a recovery between the third and fifth day, but for most this was a cruel prelude to a more vicious stage. Skin turned a sickly yellow, dark blood seeped from nose and mouth, and both diarrhea and vomit were black in color. Girard vividly describes the final moments of the afflicted Lying, exhausted and terrified, in the blood soaked, rumpled sheets, patients then drew their final halting breath. The French medical community, desperate to find a cure, clung to the now-debunked miasma theory, which posited that yellow fever and other deadly diseases were spread through poisonous air. They believed the disease stemmed from inhaling noxious fumes of decomposing bodies littering Sandoming's jungles and swamps. It wasn't until the 1880s that the Cuban scientist Carlos Finlay proposed the mosquito as the vector for yellow fever. This theory only gained widespread acceptance in the early twentieth century following extensive American research. Amidst this backdrop, the French forces in Saint-Domingue continued to succumb to the epidemic. Their dwindling numbers struggled against the surging tide of rebels. In November, the French command suffered a critical blow with the death of General Charles Leclerc, also due to yellow fever. Leclerc was succeeded by General Donatian Marie Joseph de Rochambeau, a man of infamy, who brought with him not just a reinforcement of 20,000 soldiers, but also a deep seated loathing for the black population. His disdain was only surpassed by his contempt for the mixed-race inhabitants of Saint-Domingue, whom he resented for their privileges and their perceived closeness to whiteness. Convinced that only sheer terror could end the revolt, he began a series of sadistic assaults that made Leclerc's previous acts of violence pale in comparison. Ferocious dogs, starved and trained to attack black and mixed-race people, were imported to hunt down rebels hiding in the wilds of Saint-Domingue. There are also tales of them being used in public executions, where prisoners were tied to stakes, had their abdomens split open, and then devoured alive. His arsenal of horrors included burning prisoners at the stake, crucifixion, tying weights to them and drowning them in the harbor and slaughtering soldiers who surrendered. He even devised an early form of gas chamber, trapping prisoners in shipholds where sulfur was burned, releasing sulfur dioxide, which slowly suffocated them. Journalist and author James M. Perry, in his book Arrogant Armies, Great Military Disasters and the Generals Behind Them, notes, quote, it was a campaign of extermination. He, meaning Rochambeau, drowned so many blacks in the Bay of Le Cap, nobody would eat fish there for months. End quote. The brutalities were intended to demoralize the population of Saint-Domingue. Instead, it had a unifying effect. Facing Rochambeau's savagery, the black and mixed communities formed a stronger bond between them. Defeat meant enslavement. Freedom or death was more than just a slogan. It was a lived creed. Many, particularly the African-born, believed death would reunite them with their homeland, rendering them fearless in the face of various sadistic executions. Disgusted by the barbarity of their commanders, scores of mixed-race French soldiers defected to join the rebels. Rochambeau's atrocities especially incensed Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Louverture's former ally, already known for his murderous tendencies. As violence re-erupted, Dessalines emerged as the most influential general of Saint-Domingue, countering atrocities with grotesque transgressions of his own. In towns and villages seized by the rebels, he ordered the extermination of all colonizers. The rebellion was spiraling into a full-scale race war. While Toussaint Louverture had envisioned Saint-Domingue as an autonomous part of a greater French commonwealth, Dessalines aimed to completely sever ties with the European colonial power, regardless of the cost. Napoleon's failure to subdue saint compounded by increasing domestic threats, led him to sell the vast French Louisiana territory to the United States in April 1803. This territory, far larger than the modern state of Louisiana, included present-day Arkansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Missouri, and Montana. With this sale, Napoleon abandoned his dreams of a French empire in the Western Hemisphere. At the same time, the acquisition doubled the size of the young American nation.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, if. if, Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: In May 1803, a clandestine conference was held in a coastal town in western Saint-Domingue. There, Jean-Jacques Dessalines and his former adversary, Alexandre Petillon, agreed to a formal alliance. Since deserting the French army, Petion had risen as a key rebel leader. His recognition of Dessalines as the supreme revolutionary leader was pivotal for unifying the rebel forces. Instead of fragmented groups, a formidable unified army emerged. Local lore recounts that it was at this conference the rebels' new flag was born. Dessalines is said to have dramatically ripped the white section from the French tricolor, leaving only the blue, representing the island's black population, and the red, symbolizing the mixed populace. According to legend, His goddaughter, the seamstress Catherine Flon, crafted the first version of this emblematic flag. Napoleon's apprehensions about renewed European conflicts materialized when Britain, rekindling old rivalries, declared war on France that same month. Interestingly, despite their grievous losses in Saint Domingue just years before, The British now supported the rebels. Napoleon was clearly the more hated enemy. This alliance effectively strangled French reinforcements and supplies, sealing the fate of the French forces in Saint-Domingue. The autumn of 1803 marked a pivotal turning point as the last French bastions in Saint-Domingue toppled one by one, leaving only the capital Cap-Francais standing. The climax of this struggle was the Battle of Vertier, unfolding just south of the town on November 18th. There, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the rebel commander, led his troops, seasoned by twelve relentless years of war, but one of his officers was responsible for the most famous feat, François Capois. This scene has probably been embellished over time, but it's still interesting if nothing else because it says something about the heiress's view of honor and gentlemanly combat. Legend has it that Capois, leading his men, made two valiant attempts to ascend a hill and seize one of the French makeshift forts. French General Rochambeau witnessed this and saw rebel soldiers fall in droves. Unfazed, Capois embarked on a third assault, only to be unseated as his horse was shot from under him. In a dramatic twist, Capois, rather than retreating, allegedly drew his sword and charged up the hill on foot, rallying his soldiers behind him. The story goes that, so moved by his bravery, the French seized their fire. While Capois was on his way up, a French officer on horseback is said to have approached him, delivering Rochambeau's admiration for his courage. After the officer rode back, the battle resumed. In the end, the rebels succeeded in capturing the position, a vital victory even if the price, in the form of over a thousand dead soldiers, was high. In a gesture of respect, Rochambeau later sent his horse to Capois as a compliment. Meanwhile, Rochambeau and the French survivors faced a grim reckoning. With rebel forces encircling nearby forts and potential ambushes en route to Cap Francais, and the British fleet prowling the coastline, Rochambeau opted for negotiation. Under the cloak of night, a French emissary brokered a deal with Dessalines. In return for a ceasefire, the French pledged to evacuate the colony within ten days. After desperately trying to find a way to escape Saint-Domingue without sailing straight into the British blockade, Rochambeau and his men were finally forced to leave the colony to avoid Dessalines' retaliation. They were captured almost immediately by the British. The French were finally ousted from Saint-Domingue. In the whirlwind span of just under two years, Napoleon's ill-fated invasion had seen France lose a staggering fifty thousand soldiers, each life a stinging reminder of how badly they had underestimated the resistance. On the first day of 1804, Jean-Jacques Dessalines heralded a new era. Proclaiming the birth of an independent nation, what is usually called history’s first Black Republic. Never before had a slave revolt resulted in the establishment of an independent state, and in the process, this diminutive island nation had vanquished the Ars Titans, France, Great Britain, and Spain. The new nation took the name Haiti which roughly means the land of high mountains in the indigenous Taino tongue. Haiti had paid an exorbitant price for freedom. Estimates suggest the war claimed the lives of up to two or even three hundred thousand Haitians, potentially halving the island's population. Beyond the human toll, the nation's economy and infrastructure lay in ruins. But this was only the beginning of Haiti's bloody history. For Dessalines, the pressing concern was a potential French resurgence. Preparing for this likelihood, he maintained a large standing army and initiated the construction of new fortifications. Yet Dessalines sought a more immediate solution to neutralize the threat. To secure Haiti's future as a black state, he deemed it necessary to eliminate the remaining French colonizers, reneging on earlier assurances of their safety. Dessalines gave the order almost immediately after independence. Between January and April 1804, the Haitian army moved from village to village, systematically exterminating as many French as possible. Bayonets and beheadings were preferred over gunfire, the latter potentially alerting and aiding escapees. Initially, French women were allowed to keep their lives, subjugated instead to sexual violence, but soon, to prevent the birth of new Frenchmen, they too fell murdered. Only those who married black soldiers were spared. Children were not exempt for this brutality, and the mass killings were followed by widespread looting. Many soldiers, especially those of mixed heritage, were initially reluctant to partake in the slaughter. Dessaline, invoking centuries of brutal enslavement, persuaded them. Sometimes he specifically tasked mixed-race soldiers as executioners, symbolically severing their ties to their European heritage. But there were grayscales as always, and there are examples of several mixed-race officers who thirsted most for blood. By the time the carnage was over, Three to five thousand French had been killed. Only a few were pardoned, usually those with precious skills or knowledge. Whites of other nationalities generally escaped harm. This includes, for example, British sailors, American traders, and a group of up to 500 Polish soldiers who deserted from Napoleon's army during the war and instead fought on the side of the rebels. An interesting aspect of Haiti's new constitution was that Dessalines did away with Saint-Domingue's previous divisions between black, white, and mixed inhabitants. In the new Haiti, all citizens were considered black, and since the Poles, who went over to Dessalines' side during the war, were rewarded with civil rights, they also came to be counted as black, in a way. The term black was therefore more about nationality than skin color. There were several motives behind the massacre, according to historian Philip Girard. In his book, The Slaves Who Defeated Napoleon, he argues that Dessalines saw the killings as revenge and a way to prevent the remaining French from revolting if Napoleon attempted another invasion but there were also financial incentives as Dessalines confiscated the property of the dead. He also viewed the massacres as having a bonding effect since so many were involved in the killing. Haiti already had a bad reputation internationally as a newborn nation led by ex-enslaved people, but the massacre tarnished it further. Much of the global community, led by states like the U.S. and France, ostracized Haiti with trade embargoes. Great Britain, which allied with Haiti in the fight against France, was initially unsure whether it would recognize the new country. But after Dessalines' bloodthirsty rampage, all possibilities for negotiation disappeared. In the Caribbean and the U.S., Haiti's revolt instilled fear among slaveholders and reinforced racial prejudices. Many people were now convinced that they could never give their slaves freedom since they would then meet a similar fate. In the eyes of some whites, the Haitian revolt became the ultimate sign that black people needed to be subdued for them to not give in to their animalistic nature. But in the end, The fear of similar revolts would later play a part in Western nations finally shifting away from slavery. More on that in future episodes. With the French out of the way, Dessalines' focus shifted to rebuilding Haiti. The plantation-based economy was still central, but as usual, Dessalines' methods were severe. In the fall of 1805, He crowned himself Emperor of Haiti for life, with the right to name his own successor, and the population was presented with two choices. All adults would either be soldiers ready to defend the nation against France or other invaders, or laborers attached to a specific plantation. Conditions on these plantations were harsh, bordering on slave-like forced labor. Dessaline's reign sowed the seeds of future strife. The exact circumstances are debated, but in 1806, just two years into his rule, Dessaline was assassinated by his allies. In the coming years, Haiti split into two rival states, the north under Henri Christophe, Toussaint Louverture's former military commander, and the south under Alexandre Petion. Since Christophe was black and Petion mixed, the division reignited tensions between the two groups. Fear of renewed French aggression led Christophe to erect a network of fortresses, with the colossal Citadelle La Ferrière as its crown jewel. It is situated on a mountain top, nine hundred meters or three thousand feet above sea level in a forested and inaccessible region. The citadel symbolized a strategic shift. If foreign forces threatened again, Haitians would abandon the vulnerable coasts, retreating inland to their formidable mountainous sanctuaries. The huge construction was completed in 1820 and involved tens of thousands of workers. The fort, still looming today, is sometimes shrouded by clouds. But on a clear day, one can gaze from its ramparts and see the Atlantic Ocean stretching to the north. The design gives the castle an asymmetrical appearance, presenting a different façade from every vantage point. Towering walls soaring over forty meters or hundred and thirty feet high enclose a space capable of sheltering up to 5,000 souls, and bristling with more than 360 cannons. Resilient through several earthquakes, Citadelle Laferrière is now one of Haiti's most popular tourist destinations. From the nearby town of Miloa, a winding uphill road stretches 11 kilometers to the fort's gates. This journey begins with a four-wheel drive, but must be completed on foot or horseback. The true test of Citadelle Laferrière's might remain a historical mystery, as a new French invasion never materialized. Yet even today, the shadows of slavery, colonialism, and the war for liberation continue to linger over Haiti. In addition, the nation has grappled with foreign intervention, corrupt leadership, and catastrophic natural events, including nearly two decades of American occupation between 1915 and 1934, the oppressive Duvalier dynasty between 1957 and 1986, and the devastating 2010 earthquake. Each of these chapters in Haiti's history might one day be explored in further podcast episodes, as they collectively have contributed to Haiti's current vulnerabilities. But another aspect has also contributed and is worth highlighting now. In many ways, Haiti was crippled as early as 1825, roughly two decades after its hard-won independence. Struggling with continued isolation, The country agreed to France's demand to pay one hundred and fifty million francs. The money served to compensate France and the colonizers for their lost property. The property for which Haiti had to pay compensation was not only the land, the plantations and the equipment, it also mainly included the actual people. All the individuals who had been enslaved, those the French had previously owned, in exchange, Haiti would receive a long-awaited recognition as an independent nation, thus reducing the risk of a future invasion. To put this in perspective, recall that the United States purchased the vast Louisiana territory from Napoleon. I talked about that earlier in the episode. The U.S. paid only fifteen million francs, a mere tenth of Haiti's burden. Even accounting for the passage of time and inflation, the disparity is stark. The Louisiana territory was seventy-seven times larger than Haiti, highlighting the staggering injustice of Haiti's indemnity. The world at the time took note of this inequity. The negotiations, if you can even call them that, were starkly imbalanced, conducted under the looming threat of the French fleet stationed off Haiti's coast. In an article published in August 1825, the British newspaper The Times questioned Haiti's future prospects Quote, What power of resisting any encroachment or resenting any insult? Or securing any respect from France, can the Haitian people boast of, after stripping themselves of a sum which few states in Europe could bear to sacrifice without a long course of national weakness and privation? The payment was to be made in five installments, 30 million francs each. Haiti couldn't even afford the first one. Haiti resorted to borrowing from French and later American banks at exorbitant interest rates. Although the compensation was later reduced to 90 million francs, it took until 1947 before Haiti managed to pay off the sum and the accumulated interest. These payments left marks noticeable even today. Take, for instance, the response to natural disasters in Haiti compared to the Dominican Republic which shares the island of Hispaniola. Being geographically similar, one would think the countries would be hit the same. But the impact of hurricanes, for example, is disproportionately severe in Haiti. This is partly due to poor leadership, poverty, and corruption, of course, but also to Haiti's extensive deforestation. Only about 4% of Haiti is forested, a tiny number. Compare that with Sweden, where I live, where 70% of the country is forested. And to be fair, even now, Haitians contribute to deforestation. Many residents, for example, are so impoverished that they cut down the few trees that exist to use as firewood. But the deforestation began much earlier, during the colonial era, when many trees were cut down to make room for coffee and sugar plantations. And when Haiti was forced to pay reparations to France, the country became desperate for new revenue sources. One way to generate money was to cut down even more of the forest and export vast amounts of timber. The environmental consequences have been dire, leading to soil erosion and exasperating floods and landslides. In May 2022, in May 2022, the New York Times published a comprehensive report of the reparations that Haiti was forced to pay France. The newspaper stated, among other things, that the sum is the equivalent of $560 million today, and concluded that France and the United States played a decisive role in sowing poverty and dysfunction in Haiti. Collaborating with 15 leading economists, the New York Times also investigated how much that money could have been worth today if it had been allowed to remain and be invested in the Haitian economy. The figure they arrived at was between 21 and 115 billion dollars. Haiti's economy could thus have been between two to eight times larger than in 2020. Money that could have been invested in schools and health roads and bridges, water supply and sewage systems, instead went to French former plantation and slave owners. Part of the money went to the French state, and one of the parties profiting the most from the deal was the French bank CIC. According to the New York Times, the bank used some of the money to finance the construction of the Eiffel Tower. The Times' investigation also revisited a contentious historical moment. In 2003, Haiti's first democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, made headlines by demanding that France repay the money it had received from Haiti. A sum he claimed equaled $21 billion. And yes, it does sound like a lot. But interestingly, the number aligns with the one that the New York Times and their economists came up with in their report. After all, the New York Times estimated that the money would have been worth between 21 and $115 billion, so Aristide's calculation was even modest. But in February 2004, following Aristide's bold demand, an American diplomat knocked on his door. The diplomat was surrounded by security personnel from the U.S. State Department and asked for the president's dismissal. Minutes later, the president was driven to the airport and put on a plane. While the aircraft was in the air, France desperately contacted various African countries in search of one willing to receive the president. After being turned down by three countries, the Central African Republic finally agreed to welcome the Haitian now former president. He remained there for two weeks before he went into exile first in Jamaica and then in South Africa. From the French and American sides, the official version has long been that the Haitian president resigned to prevent civil war. By 2004, his rule had become unpopular and armed rebels were closing in on the capital. But in the New York Times report, France's former Haitian ambassador, Thierry Burckhardt, is quoted for the first time as calling the event a coup. He also admitted that it was partly motivated by the Haitian president's demand for financial compensation from France. Of course, it is impossible to know what Haiti's economy would have looked like without having to pay France all that money. There are far too many variables to say for sure. But perhaps Haiti's development would have been more similar to that of the neighboring country. The Dominican Republic boasts a popular tourism industry, free schools and healthcare, a functioning subway, and is a budding tv and film destination it has been among the fastest growing economies in the americas for the past few decades in contrast haiti the former pearl of the antilles is considered the poorest country in the western hemisphere the country that once supplied europe with a third of all its sugar is today an importer of sugar in july 2021 The country's controversial president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated by a group of foreign mercenaries in an act whose purpose is still not fully understood. The following month, another devastating earthquake followed. Since then, reporting from Haiti has primarily focused on a widespread street war between increasingly powerful and ruthless criminal gangs. While it is overly simplistic to attribute all of Haiti's challenges to its historical debt, it's an equal mistake to overlook this past when analyzing the present. These historical events are a vital piece of the puzzle in understanding Haiti's current state. Only time can tell if the tide can be turned or if Haiti's history will continue to haunt the country. you've listened to black history unveiled with me amat Levine. i'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode about something completely different this podcast is not made by a production company or an editorial team it is researched written produced edited and mixed by me as you can imagine it's very time consuming so if you like the podcast you can support the work in a few different ways You can go to patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled and become a monthly subscriber for as little as a dollar a month. Several different subscriptions are available, and depending on which tier you prefer, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and more. More info is right there on Patreon. Or you can support the podcast by rating it or writing a short review on the app you're listening to or just share it on social media or tell someone about it. As early as next week, Patreon subscribers can look forward to a bonus episode about Haiti that closely examines some of the things covered in these three parts. For example, who were those Polish soldiers I mentioned earlier? Why were they even in Saint-Domingue? Why did they go over and fight on the side of the enslaved? And what happened to them after? You'll hear about that, and more, next week, only on Patreon. See you then.
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit juvederm.com. That's J U V E D E R M.com.
2: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues